You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Dr. Michael Bassett is a former Labor Party MP who retired in 1990. He's also a political historian, and Michael and I love delving into that history. I thought Michael would be a great guest to have on The Crunch to give a history-based perspective on this election. And he's here to talk personalities, politics, parties, who's great, who's dreadful, and get his reckons on this election. Welcome to The Crunch, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Now, this is an exciting election. I don't know about you, but it, it certainly is for me. I think we're seeing something unusual happening out there. And so I thought I'd get someone who is a keen observer of elections over decades to share with our listeners some of your observations about where we're at and where we're heading. Well, that's, uh, that's nice to be asked. Um, I'm not finding it a particularly exciting campaign. Uh, I don't uh, think that either of the leading candidates uh, is particularly uh, exciting, uh, <laughs> yeah. leading the parties. The best um, uh, by far, and uh, the one who, uh, you know, is the voice of the future is David Seymour. Yes. Uh, the uh, And, you know, with David on the one hand at 40 and Winston at 78, you're left uh, thinking, um, uh, heavens, who's interested in the future of the country? Well, it appears both of those people are interested in the future of the country, but, so. <laughs> but perhaps taking it from different a different approach. And I guess with MMP and the advent of MMP, and of course you, you – uh, left Parliament before MMP arrived, so you never had to deal with the beast, um, mm. so to so to speak. But I think MMP forces people to try at least try and work together. Well, up to a point, yes, but it it fraction it fractionalizes or fractionates. So I'm not quite sure which the word is there. The political process. I mean, I my political life was one where the Labour Party incorporated everybody from uh, a, a, quite a significant chunk of the business community through to the extreme left. And you have to sort of find your position uh, within uh, the Labour Party. National had its own extremes. And um, so you learnt to work within the party. Uh, once you got MMP, you ended up with people uh, being uh, rewarded, if you like, for having a difference. And you only had to uh, persuade 5% uh, or win a seat. And uh, you had uh, your party. And I think that MMP has actually divided this country terribly. I think also that MMP gave far too much power to the parties, which was not what was intended by the voters when they selected MMP. I they agree with that. Yeah, they thought that they were going to uh, keep the power of the parties under control, and, and I think MMP actually expanded the power of the parties, but so much so that it created a cult of personality uh, where blind adherence to the leader uh trumps the core philosophy of the founding principles of each party. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think that the leadership of the parties was very important uh, and has always been ever since the days of uh, Dick Seddon. Seddon, Ward, Massey were big figures. Uh, so was Coates, um, not Forbes so much, but uh, Mickey Savage was incredibly important to Labour's first victory in 1935. And Peter Fraser, who was uh, Prime Minister uh, when I was a young fellow growing up, um, and uh, and so on through, over the years. Um, yes, I think possibly the leaders are a little more important now, but not very much. Um, but they've always been important, is my line. Mm. I mean, we've we've seen you know in recent days Christopher Luxon you know reprimanding one of his MPs for a stance that he put on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it was ten years ago, and making that MP say, oh, no, I'm in agreement with the leader, I'm in agreement with the party, we're this, we're that. 
this it strikes me as you know. National Party and the Labour Party in particular used to be a broad church that accepted people with different views. And now it seems that at the behest of the media almost, there's this gotcha type thing which then creates this homogenised view of what the Labour Party or the National Party is. You've put your finger on it there, Cameron. I agree completely that the media, uh, I mean, I think the standard of the media has slipped in this country uh, the media in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, there were some incredible journalists around, really mm. able people. Nowadays, uh, you're looking at, at people who uh, th- think they're doing a wonderful job when they engage in, the, in a sort of a gotcha moment, you know, where something doesn't quite tally with something you said some little time ago, as though anybody cares much. Well, that's the thing that, that uh, strikes me is this gotcha politics uh, stuff is not actually extending political debate in any way. It's uh, I'm going to get you um, no matter what for something you did 15, 20, 30. I mean, we saw this with John Key, didn't we? When the media hounded him for, you know, constantly over the years on his stance over the Springbok tour, like anyone cared 30 years later. Yes, quite, quite. But, uh, oh, those those things are very important to lesser mortals who have a job in the media and who themselves have very inadequate educations for the most part. Now, you've written a, a blog post recently. It's on the Bassett, Brash and Hyde website where you're talking about the media in quite a bit of detail. Uh, and some of the things that the media are doing and, in fact, forcing the opposition and also the government into making silly electoral mistakes because they're reacting to the media. Yes, and really the thrust of that article uh, that I wrote was that by concentrating all the time on picky little bits of Nationals tax policy, they were just advertising, the media were advertising to the world and his wife that National had tax relief in its policy and making it therefore more likely that people would take an interest in it. I don't happen to think that National's tax policy is all that good. I'm not sure it's even um, wise at this moment. But having said that, they have issued the policy and the um, media is advertising its existence like there's no tomorrow. And Christopher Hipkins, all he's talking about is Mm. National's tax cuts. And they're at the stage, I've seen this before, I saw it, you know, at the end of the Bolger-Shipley years where the incumbent can say whatever they want, but no one's listening to them anymore. And all they hear from Christopher Hickens is Nationals tax cuts, blah, 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 blah. Nationals tax cuts, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it's perpetuating what you're exactly what you're saying that the media uh, are following. I mean, I was sitting down with a, a, a prominent lawyer uh, just yesterday for breakfast, and he was saying, oh, this uh, Nationals tax cut thing doesn't add up. And I said, oh, mate, no one cares. <laughs> like literally no one cares it's something that can be fixed later but no one cares because they just don't want to hear anything more from anyone wearing a red uh, jacket or a red sweatshirt or a red t-shirt they just don't want to hear it anymore well it it, it may well be that uh, but we've had moments like that in our mm. history i in in the article i wrote i compared it a little bit to uh, Sir Joseph Ward coming back after years and years and years in the wilderness um, and leading the opposition into the 1928 election and misreading his speech notes. And uh, in the opening of uh, his campaign in the Auckland Town Hall, instead of um, uh, saying that he would borrow abroad over 10 years a sum of £70 million, He had a sort of a, a, a blue funk because he was in a diabetic uh, kind of state and uh, said he'd borrow the 70 million in one year. Well, of course, the media went absolutely berserk, as did the um, uh, government of the day. Uh, and um, all they did was advertise Ward's policy. And they talked about it so much. 
and belted him around, this poor old boy, he was 72 and uh, frail, uh, and they belted him about, and um, he was elected. And I think uh, Chippy is uh, busy doing the same thing with um, uh, talking on and on about tax cuts of nationals. I suspect it'll be the primary thing he talks about tonight uh, in the uh, debate with um, Luxon. Yeah, I'm, I'm not looking forward to that debate because I think that uh, I think that we're going to see two people with a bunch of strap lines that they've rehearsed. And doesn't matter what the question is, they're going to deliver those strap lines, and it's going to be an unedifying uh, performance from both of them. It isn't going to fill, fill either of us with confidence. I I fear you're right. Yeah, I I mean, I the, the people that you're mentioning from the past, uh, you know, the big names, the profiles of those leaders, but they also did big things. Yes. And I think back in the. MMP era in particular, and I can't think of a single big thing that has been done in the MMP era. Most of it's small beer stuff, tinkering I'm, at the at the outside. I'm, I'm really struggling to see something that is as important as, say, your 1989 local body reforms or the think big things that Muldoon did that, you know, ironically, everybody opposed, but now we're all sitting there clutching onto the power that those things generate. These were big things that were done. Michael Joseph Savage, um, state housing. Yes. What has anybody you- done in the modern MMP era that's big in your view? Uh, I think the biggest was KiwiSaver. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll accept that. I think there was. Michael Allen's KiwiSaver really meant something for a wide number of people. Mm. Uh, our super, the government that I was in, the Kirk government uh, in the 1970s, introduced a superannuation scheme, which Muldoon canned and then brought in his own system in 1976 7. Mm. But um, KiwiSaver was really a big one. And, uh, you know, people are able to calculate when they'd like to retire and uh, uh, conscious of what their assets are going to be and how much they'll need and what the state of health is. And uh, that's that's been a huge thing. Is there anything that John Key did that was big? No, not much. Well, the biggest things he did were um, uh, retrograde, uh, like sending, um, uh, what's his name, Sharples off to sign up to the uh, Indigenous rights uh, mm. uh, notion. Uh, Maori are not Indigenous to New Zealand. I mean, they're, uh, they, I grew up and you grew up in a world where uh, we were told about how they sailed their canoes from uh, Hawaii. And it was to Hawaii that their spirits returned when they died. And um, so that was a mistake. And it was made because John knew nothing about New Zealand history. I don't think he's ever read much. And um, now, what was his second uh, uh, big mistake? Um, flag. The flag. Oh, the flag. Yes, yes. Well, that was a, a sort of a silly uh, notion. And he misjudged the public uh, very seriously on that. Yeah, I had a discussion with him at the time, and I said to him, you're wrong on this, and you're going to be proved wrong. And he um, rather arrogantly suggested to me that his power of persuasion was more efficient and more effective at changing uh, people's minds than my opposition to changing the flag. And I said, and I said to him, "Well, he said, he even said to me, look, the Labour Party even has it as one of their election promises to change the flag.' I said, you don't think that's going to last five seconds after you announce you're going to change the flag, do you? <laughs> they'll oppose, they'll oppose changing the flag because you're suggesting it. Mm. And that was the pure politics of it. And, and in many respects, I don't think John Key understood pure politics. Yes, he could be." advised sensibly and he had some great advisors around him but i don't think his on that issue uh his instincts uh were anywhere near what the public thought and remember it was quite late in his time at the top and people were tiring of him 
His other great failure was his failure to honour the promise that he made in 2008 to um, get new, the New Zealand economy performing as well as Australia's. Mm. And uh, he impanelled um, uh, John um, Don Brash and a number of other uh, high-powered people to come up with a template on how it could be done, but it just required a little bit much concentration and uh, a little bit more rigorous self-control than he wanted to engage in. And uh, so they battered it away and the New Zealand economy has slid in relation to Australia ever since. It's interesting you say that he didn't you know, concentrate on some of these things uh, mm. in a way that he should have. Mm. And and I put that down to the MMP environment and our rather short by international standards three-year term. And if people who are reforming type politicians, and you know we can probably count them on the fingers of one hand, <laughs> um, they tend to do things in a with a great hiss and a roar in the first year, settle it down in the second, and then talk about anything else but that in the third so that they can get re-elected. Well, there's an element of truth in that, I think, uh, a big element of truth in it. Uh, but John Key reminded me very much of Keith Holyoke, and I argue that in my mm. book on the Prime Ministers. Um, I mean, Holyoke... Uh, uh, campaigned, I think it was steady as she goes, or um, uh, some slogan like that in the 60s. And that was basically John Key's approach. Uh, so long as I can stay at the top as prime minister and uh, uh, not alienate uh, too many people, uh, that's good for New Zealand. Well, mistaking yourself for the benefit of your country is not a great look. No. And as soon as he realised that uh, it was going to be uh, touch and go at the next election. He cut and run. And I I really have a personal objection to MPs and prime ministers who stood on the hustings and told us that they were going to be there for the long haul. And when the going gets tough, they disappear and, you know, for family reasons or whatever reason they concoct to exit. No gas in the tank in the case of Ardern. You know, um, and in Key's case, don't forget, he said more or less the same. Yeah. So they they just bugger off into the ether <laughs> and then turn up about, you know, a year later as some sort of commentator on anything that anybody's talking about. Hmm. And, you know, they really should just shut up. You've left. Go away. Anything you had to say was uh, important when you are in, but it's not important now. And it just grinds my gears that people, the media in particular, keep going back to these people who, when the going got tough, they cut and run. There's no intestinal fortitude anymore in politicians. I presume the problem of uh, of wanting to comment after you've left office comes from the fact that you, you're so used to the limelight and you're so used to and so opinionated on so many things that you can't bear not being questioned uh, and not uh, being seen to have an opinion. It's a personal problem that all politicians have winding down. I understand it a little bit myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always say to politicians, you, know, you need to stay grounded because one day you're not going to be a politician. And you'll know that day because that's the day your phone stops ringing and people stop actually calling you to think, hear what you've got to say about anything or they've gotten you're no use to them anymore so they don't ring you. But one thing is certain, they'll stop ringing you. <laughs> oh, that's, that's true to a point. Mm. Uh, it depends. Some people stay too long and retire too late. Um, I got out of politics at 52 and I still had years of uh, activity left in me. And uh, mm. I went off and did a whole lot of uh, other things. And uh, um, I kept busy. But um, I feel sorry for somebody who gets to 78 and still can't work out what on earth uh, can occupy his mind uh, in his remaining years. Well, he would say he's a patriot and he wants to sort things out. 
Well, a fat lot of help that'll be. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he, he gave us um, uh, uh, Jim Bolger in 1996. Uh, he kept Helen Clark in in 2005. He gave us Jacinda in 2017 and now I think regrets it deeply. I mean, who's going to really follow his judgment and uh, think, gosh, he's finally cracked it? He can be trusted. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> oh, but he's enigmatic, really, isn't he? In a oh, bit yes. of a rascal and a scallywag, yeah. and fun yeah. to watch in action. Yes, but our country uh, can only uh, uh, tolerate scallywags up to a point. Uh, you've got to remain serious, uh, otherwise, you'll go to hell in the handcart. Well, that's where we're sitting at the moment economically, isn't it? We've got a, a bunch of people who really don't understand the basics of economics trying uh, desperately to spend their way out of economic doldrums. Yes, and they're, they're busy criticising everybody else for spending, and yet every single day Hipkins announced some new expenditure I mean, there were, what was it yesterday? Solar panels and subsidies for solar panels. I can't imagine anything more geared towards um, upper income groups who can afford to install solar panels than that uh, little thing. And the day before it was something else. Oh, extending the years for mammograms, was it? And uh, I mean, every day there's some new expenditure coming out of the government which um, uh, told us last week with the preview that uh, the room for manoeuvring is very, very small uh, financially. Well, you know, and some of the things that they're announcing are things they've announced six years ago, and they <laughs> still haven't delivered them. I mean, do you remember Jacinda Ardern saying that this year was the year of delivery? Well, I think the post office went AWOL that year because nothing got delivered. <laughs> the post office has almost given up, or except, of course, for the courier service, which is splendid. I mean, it is the best of the courier services. But the old um, uh, penny postage of Sir Joseph Ward's um, uh, has long gone. Oh, I don't think people write letters anymore. You know, how many people actually bother to check their letterbox for anything these days? Yeah, I posted a letter last week, but it was the first time for a long time. <laughs> well, you know what? You could have, you should have um, got someone to video that, stuck it on TikTok. You know, <laughs> Michael Bassett posts a letter, and uh, yeah, it probably would have had you know ten million global views. That's here was somebody using a, le a letterbox, snail mail. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. In the modern era. And I say modern era, let's just draw a line and say it's 1996 with the advent of MMP. Are there any standout politicians for you as a historian that you'd say, I'd really like to dig into a bit about them uh, rather than, you know, a couple of pages in a book uh, of collection of leaders? Is there anyone who stood out for you as an admirable leader who did things to make New Zealand better? Well, since 1996 to today, the most important politician by far would be Helen Clark. Mm. I mean, she would be second to Peter Fraser as um, uh, Labour's most important leader. Mickey Savage uh, is there as a, in the in the background as the um, uh, great man of the early 1930s, um, mid 1930s. But Helen is a force of nature, really. Mm. Um, and uh, she had a phenomenal way of going about governing. Uh, but what did she really achieve? Kiwi Saver, yes. She um, put a dampener on the foreshore and seabed silliness that the Supreme Court had uh, undertaken in uh, 2003. Um, but, of course, uh, eventually the National Party changed that for the worse uh, mm. in 2011. Um, what else did she do? Oh, um, she certainly, her health policy was pretty significant. And I think the education policy within the limits uh, of her MPs 
um, was uh, were not bad. But um, your question really is, tell me who's been really significant mm. since uh, 1996. And apart from Helen Clark and Michael Cullen as her assistant, I don't think there's been anybody who's really significant. Don Brash flashed across the scene for five seconds and uh, uh, has left an imprint in, in some areas, particularly in race relations and mm. his constant uh, push for equal opportunities rather than uh, special advantages for Māori. But other than that, we're uh, scratching the bottom of the barrel to find uh, really significant people who will go down in New Zealand history. Yeah, Helen Clark was someone that I didn't agree with her politics or her methods, but I could admire her abilities uh, in politics. I mean, to steer down Michael Cullen and a couple of others, you know, for the leadership. And, I mean, she literally steered them down and said, no, you're wrong, go away. Uh, and then to go on and win the election, the 1999 election. Probably was, her biggest move there, Cam, I think, was probably getting Anderton on the side. Yes. We forget that that Anderton was polling quite high around 1994 or 5, mm. declined in 1996 a bit, but he was still there and had a capacity to divide Labour, and that peace agreement that was made between Clark and Anderton in 1998 was very important to uh, Helen's eventual win in 1999. I guess the other thing too is she managed to to last three terms and yeah. we hadn't seen that in from the Labour Party for decades. No, they, she, were, they were considered to be a one-term or at best two-term party, but not a three-term party. Certainly in modern times, they mm. got uh, 1935, 38, 43, 46. They got four yes. terms uh, initially. But, yes, you're right, then it was a one-termer in the uh, 57 to 60, a one-termer, 72, 75, two terms, 84 to 90, and then the three terms of Helen Clark's. Yes, it was an extraordinary performance, delivered, of course, by... Um, MMP mm. uh, and uh, by um, Winston and uh, Peter Dunn. And now we've got the modern Labour Party, the current mob that are in there. Jacinda Ardern led them to a historic win in 2020 when most of New Zealand was still in thrall and, and suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, <laughs> That's my description of it anyway. But it was a historic uh, MMP win with a, an outright majority to the Labour Party. Uh, and then two short years later, she was gone, uh, leaving Chris Hipkins to, it appears, rather ineptly defend the ground that she led. And they look like they're going to lose. Well, yes. Well, two terms is uh, particularly I mean, one of the things about this Labour Party, it's not the Labour Party I was ever a member of. In fact, I'm embarrassed to admit I uh, was uh, Labour uh, because people think I might be a supporter of uh, this appalling government. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, the old Labour Party was about a hand up. It wasn't about a hand out. Yeah. Uh, if there was to be a handout to people, it was for some specific limited purpose. Not this government. This government believes in splashing money around everywhere. If you've got an itch, they'll scratch it. But are we looking at a, a, a return, possibly, of Labour not lasting three terms? And, and, you know, I've talked to Matt McCartan about this, and he said to me, that Cam, you've got to remember that New Zealand politics is about halves. So you win an election and you get given three years. That's the first half of the, of of a game. And if you played okay, then the voters will give you the right to have a second half and complete six years. Yes. But then when you come to the third term, if they've given you that ability to do two terms, you're now playing another game which has got two halves in it, 
which is why at the end of the third term, people have had enough of you and you don't get to play the, the second half of yeah. the full amount to get four terms. Would you yeah. agree with that? Yes, more or less. Uh, the third term for Helen Clark was important in one sense. It enabled KiwiSaver to be uh, cemented in. And uh, as we were saying, uh, that was a very significant milestone. But uh, yes, third terms are dangerous in the sense that uh, they do open up a, a sort of a tiredness factor that um, can uh, tell against a government. I mean, at present, there are not many people around who don't think that a change of government would improve things. I mean, I think most people are thinking, oh, my God, I'd like change. Do I trust National Enact? That's the, the vote that will vote uh, Labour. Uh, and the others are just saying, oh, to hell with um, uh, Labour. We've had them long enough. Let's get rid of them. And when that's the prevailing feel that I get. You know, I can look at the numbers. I can be like David Farah and look at the numbers and say, look, okay, Labour has lost 50% of their support from the previous election. Again, he says that's unprecedented. He's never seen that happen in, in New Zealand politics before. Mm. Uh, now, True, he hasn't been around New Zealand politics for as long as you. <laughs> but uh, he's, not, I'm he's not as old. <laughs> yeah, I'm scratching my head and I can't think of a single instance where a governing party has lost 50% or more of their support. Sure, 10%, maybe 20%. You know, if we look back at the end of the Muldoon years when uh, Bob Jones set up the New Zealand Party and grabbed 15% of the vote. For 12. No, or 12, yeah, for no seat. At one stage he was polling around 20, if I recall. Mm. But he got 12, yeah. Um, but that was enough to change the government at 12%. And that's one of the biggest, you know, swings that I've seen traditionally and particularly under MMP, a swing of 5% will change the government. But we're seeing you know, 50% just well, gone. You've got to remember that uh, under MMP, no government has gotten remotely near uh, 50% of the total vote, which Jacinda got in uh, mm. 2020. And um, that in itself is remarkable and must make that scene that you've just painted look a little more extreme. Um, yes. Well, it's uh, I can't think of any case off the cuff Perhaps Labour's defeat in uh, 1990, there was a significant fall off there. It, the vote was about 48% in 1987 and um, fell back to 35, I think it was, 34 or 35 in uh, 1990. It was quite a fall off, but it's you're right, it's much more serious this time. Well, 1990 was 12.82% swing. Swing. Okay. Away from Labour, 12.82. And the government changed, and that was a landslide election. Yeah. Um, what was, I'll just uh, look up 1975 and we'll see what that says. That was a pretty significant switch, too, uh, as was 72. I mean, 72 and 75, the winning government, the winning party got a majority of 23 seats in each of those elections. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, you'll be surprised to know that it was an 8.8% .8 swing in 1975. Okay. So yeah. that's, Not again... Not that great in today's day and age. No, and, and uh, uh, it was a 3.7% swing against Jack Marshall in 72. Right. So that was an even smaller uh, uh, swing. That Enough changed the government. And we're looking at a 50% swing here at the moment yes. uh, on the polls. And I, and I imagine there'll be another poll this week, uh, which will um, – I just sit here looking at these polls and I think – I'm thinking back, when was the last time we saw seven polls released in 10 days that all said the same thing? I mean, you know, I'm a political tragic. We look at these polls, and you always you always look for one that's got a glimmer of hope for you, you know. And you think, oh, the, all the others are rogue, or that one's a rogue, or whatever. Yeah. This was blood on the floor. 
in 10 days, seven poles in 10. I don't yeah. think I've ever seen that before. No, and it's, it's as, like, like like the British polls, I mean, you know, they, they're polling all the time. Mm. Uh, and it, I think it must be that polling is a very expensive thing and the newspapers have been in free fall for years here and uh, they've polled less and less and um, uh, radio uh, doesn't have the money to do it. So um, what did you make? Can I ask you a question? What did sure. you make of uh, the Roy Morgan poll? Well, I I tend to not look at polls as an individual poll. I look at the trend. Yes. What's the trend telling me? I mean, the Roy Morgan poll, it's always been a bit suspect. You know, they poll from Australia. Um, they, they have a different methodology to what a lot of other polls run. Um, maybe it's a bit of jealousy that it's an Australian polling company uh, and not a New Zealand polling company. It's always kind of been favouring to the left. I'm not sure that left and right exists anymore, but <laughs> it used to favour the left. Uh, it shows uh, Winston Peters probably a little bit higher at that stage than he perhaps was, although he's done a couple of things that may see him uh, leap up a little bit. But and Seymour uh, polling very well and act. They mm. were at eight, I think they were at 18%. And I'm not sure they're uh, at 18 percent. Although no, I, think I don't think they are. They're higher than 12, I think. Yeah, it's funny because David Seymour uh, was at one of my staff parties uh, after the in 2021 after the 2020 election in January, talking to a group group of people, and somebody said, "Oh, okay, David, you've done really well. Where do you see ACT going from here?" And his answer was rather strange. He said. Look, I only see the ACT Party as a 10% party. Uh, once we start getting over 10%, it gets a bit wobbly. And uh, I'm just concentrating on producing a good 10% party that can be reliable as a coalition partner. And I think back to those days now, and I look at what he said last week, where he effectively threatened the National Party by saying that he and it was a bizarre threat too, because it doesn't make any sort of political logical sense. Where he said, "I'm going to give, uh, I could give national confidence, but I'll treat supply on a case by case matter." Well, if you don't give supply, you're not giving confidence. And so it was a rather strange statement. What do you make of that? I don't know that I would have phrased it quite the way he did, but um, I mean. If you're an ACT person and you're looking at nationals' policies and their statements, you really do sometimes ask yourself, is there a need to change the government? I mean, the National Party <laughs> does, does seem to uh, uh, accept that just about everything that's in existence will be kept in existence, including 15,000 more state employees who are eating their heads off budget-wise, and um, all the mad changes. Uh, I haven't heard any indicator from the National Party that they're going to under really undermine Te Fatu Ora. They might uh, do away with the Māori-only uh, uh, component. Um, what And the education changes, I'm not greatly impressed by what I've heard. So what I'm really saying is, uh, in relation to David Seymour, uh, that... Um, you know he he's going to negotiate point by point by point if he's if he's keeping that lot in cabinet he wants some return and the public would expect some return from act and uh, i think that uh, what act's got to say on a whole lot of things particularly on race relations um i mean he's got a capacity to put some backbone into national Mm. I mean, that, that's the thing is I should be a natural ACT Party voter. I have nothing to do with the National Party. I find them woke. I find them a deep shade of pink. <laughs> uh, I think that under Christopher Luxon, they're more left than Helen Clark's Labour government. And that says a lot. And I agree with you. I don't think that National will unwind very much at all about what Labour has done in the last six years, uh, some of the most appalling divisive policies that have been brought in. 
And everything I hear from Christopher Luxon and Christopher Bishop and Nicola Willis, who are the, the wet, woke wombles at the top of the pile in the party now, is that they would be a more efficient form of the Labour Party, that they're the other side of the same coin that the Labour Party is on. I think you can argue that that's been um, national uh, through history. I mean, the hiss and roar that uh, Sid Holland promised during the 40s uh, turned out to be no more than um, uh, pulling away uh, subsidies in 1950 um, and uh, um, treating the trade union movement uh, tough in 1951, but then falling into line uh, with uh, Fintan Patrick Walsh and the union movement during the 50s. Mm. And um, Holyoke's government was very much a sort of steady as she goes, uh, let's play the the game that Labour has left for us. And uh, Muldoon was, if anything, more radical than uh, mm. Labour with uh, his controls and this capacity to try to uh, screw the economy down. Um, Bolger, no, great change much. And we now find that he's a, a little sorry that he wasn't more left. From his, uh, his, <laughs> he's of, the Malcolm Fraser of New Zealand politics. Yes, yes, he is a bit. It's quite, quite a good uh, analogy. And uh, John Key uh, was absolutely as steady as she goes, don't let's rock the boat uh, kind of a politician. So yeah, I, I've always described the National Party as the party of the status quo. They're yeah. efficient managers yeah. of what Labour left before them. That's about it. Uh, <laughs> I think you're right on it there, Cam. Yeah, and that's why I'm struggling a bit with who to vote for in this election. I can't bring myself to vote for the National Party. Their behaviour during uh, the COVID years was to say that they would have done everything that Jacinda Ardern did, that, you know, all the divisiveness. They just would have been more efficient fascists <laughs> in, in, in implementing it and stumping on our rights. David Seymour has said some appalling things uh, and done some appalling things. He's somebody who has paraded himself around the country as a bastion of free speech. Now, free speech can only exist if you support all the other rights that support that. I mean, you know, People mock the United States, but the U.S. Constitution is almost a perfect document where the right of, to free speech is the First Amendment, and that's protected by the right to bear arms in order to ensure that the right to free speech exists as the Second Amendment, and everything flows from there. We where don't does, have anything David, like that. Where does David fall down on all of that, though? Well, I, I mean, well, I, I know you're an Act Party, you know, stalwart, but... I'm, you not, know, I'm not he, a stalwart, but I, I'm almost certainly going to vote for him. He, he was, he, this was before 2021 and 2022. He was touring the country, making speeches about free speech and how important it was and all that. And yet when a bunch of people turned up uh, on the forecourt of parliament to express their free speech, he refused to listen. He refused to engage. And he was the bastion of, of rights that, that he has put the Act Party out as being. And yet he joined in with the governing party uh, with deriding these people who were in serious pain. Uh, I, you know, I, I think you're going too far there. I mean, you're, you're putting a gloss on that rabble that were in Parliament building. Well, I was one of those, Michael. Well, that's all right. I mean, there were some quite good people there, but there were a hell of a lot of uh, um, losers. Well, I wouldn't people put them as losers. They were they were put in a position by an uncaring government that told them that they were caring, while at the same time shutting down their businesses, their jobs, destroying their families. Uh, and what, all the other things. That's and, what those guys were doing around Parliament. They more or less ruined business within about a one-mile radius for um, uh, weeks and weeks and weeks. Well, I would have to disagree on that because I was there. And uh, the, the you know you could go further out away from the Parliament area and Wellington was dead. And it was dead because the vast majority of people who live and work in Wellington are working for corporates or the government. And all of those businesses were in stay-at-home. Uh, work of work from home environments, and many still are. 
uh, which is why the whole economy in Wellington has gone through the floor. And it was a convenient excuse to blame, um, you know, a bunch of people who were protesting about appalling degradations of human rights. That well, and we're all told that it was all wonderful, you know, that well, this is okay, and they had a choice, and all of this. There was no choice. There's an element of truth in what you're saying, but only an element of truth. Uh, I mean, for every uh, every um, uh, genuine person around Parliament. There was a um, a troublemaker as well, uh, and um, I and what David Seymour did on balance was to try and keep away from them, believing that there were more of the troublemakers than uh, uh, than there were uh, good people. I think in retrospect, he possibly would have more time or and gone and seen them but uh anyway that's uh that's small stuff um, well as i say you can't put the poo back in the donkey you know <laughs> uh, but one thing i would suggest uh, michael if you've got time is to go and watch river of freedom the movie that was released uh, last week uh about the wellington protests and uh you might find your view changes a little bit if you watch that movie it's uh, very moving, very powerful, and it actually shows what I witnessed when I was at the at the Wellington protest. River and of Freedom. River of Freedom, yep. Go and watch that. Uh, it's well worth it. It's beautifully put together, and it shows what I think is a more true example rather than the appalling documentaries that stuff has put together in Radio New Zealand and various other, you know, agit prop. Uh, organizations in the media. And uh, when you actually see what was going on behind the scenes and the, and the mass movement that there was to make such a thing happen, you realize that there is some fighting spirit in New Zealand and we still do have that old Kiwi mentality of working together on things. And uh, I think it would change your mind. Oh, I'll have a look. Uh... Yeah. Um, so you describe this government as an appalling government. Yeah. Right? You're a historian. Have there been worse ones, or is this one actually the worst? Not in my lifetime. <laughs> uh, I'm prepared to believe that the uh, 30 to 35 government was uh, pretty bad, although Coates when he joined the government in, uh, became Minister of Finance in 1933, certainly started to turn around the Forbes government. But that one possibly was worse. I can't think back to another one since 1890 that would have been as bad as this government. I mean, your real problem with this government is just simply that you've got a whole collection of student politicians. Uh, none of them has really done anything uh, of significance in their lives uh, except uh, sit around Parliament and, uh, um, you know, wisecrack. And um, none of them seems that none of them does any reading. I don't think Chris Hipkins uh, uh, reads at all. He builds rock gardens, I'm told, and looks after um, uh, his garden. Eats but, sausage rolls. Yes, oh, yes. But he doesn't read. He doesn't know anything about New Zealand history. Grant Robertson knows nothing about New Zealand history and had never done economics, I gather, at university. He knows uh, even less about economics, yeah. Quite, quite. and, uh, you know... I'm just not used to governments led by people who know nothing. Carmel Cepoloni is a disaster. You know, talk about getting the incentives wrong for poor people. I mean, that's why um, poverty is actually significantly worse now than it was in 2017. This government's actually created poverty and will go on creating more poverty with the sorts of um, social welfare policies they've got. And the education system is just, oh, don't start me. <laughs> so that's quite an indictment, really, that this is in your... You know, this is a, my lifetime, and I'm... Yeah, yeah, your lifetime. This is the worst government, and even you can look through the lens of history, being a historian, and sort out the, you know, the, the publicity from fact. And you're saying this is the worst government ever. 
in New Zealand? Yes, with the possible exception of 30 to 35. Yeah, but that's three years. So this is six years. So six years beats three years. <laughs> so let's just talk about how it got like that. Andrew Little was not a spectacular leader. He's an unlovable, unlikable person. They put in Jacinda Ardern and they were elected on nothing more than a slogan and some you know, massive policies that they couldn't even get close to delivering. I mean, if you put Jacinda Ardern in a room full of Lego, she'd struggle to build a house, let alone <laughs> 100,000 houses. These were big promises that they never delivered on and quietly well, they, shelved. They didn't really have all that much detailed promise stuff in 2017. I mean, that's why they had those 300 committees, which were set up in um, um, 2018, really to uh, tell them what to do. And, you know, basically they were going to pull the whole world apart. And they're suffering as a result of doing so much damage to the fabric of New Zealand and lacking the administrative skills to be able to put it back together again. And, uh, I mean, who would say that the health system with Te Whatu Ora is performing better than the system with the um, uh, district health boards prior to uh, 2020? I mean, you'd have to be a fool to argue that health has significantly improved uh, as a result of anything uh, Labor has done. You'd have to be a, a complete mug and not read the newspapers even to believe that education has improved. They don't even begin to... I mean, Hipkins has really been responsible for the last six years of education. Nearly all of it is as the minister... And uh, all that time, standards of education, reading, writing, arithmetic have all slid. And, um, oh dear, <laughs> falling cover. Falling cover. Um, but there was so much promise, you know. I never believed it. Uh, you, you might have. No, no, I never did. Was, I met Jacinda Ardern in person in 2008. Uh, in Warrensville, of all places, uh, when David Farrer and I were travelling around New Zealand in what we called the Blogmobile, we'd been gifted a motorhome, and this ACT Party supporter said, "I'll oh, come and have lunch at, at my place, and um, I'll I'll get along a politician." I thought, "Oh, okay, well, this will be interesting." David Farrer and I tip up at this place for lunch, and in comes Jacinda Ardern. Now, I sort of briefly knew who she was. Uh, I thought she was. You know, uh, somewhat stupid. I haven't changed my opinion of her after that three-hour lunch. In fact, it probably got worse, uh, where she regaled us all with a selection of bumper sticker slogans and nothing more deep than that. And I thought, if this is the great white hope of the Labour Party, then they've got trouble. And then, you know, little did I know that she was going to then become the Prime Minister. But I think she was as vacuous as a prime minister as she was uh, at that lunch in 2008. Uh, David Farrer was, of course, smitten, as he is always by a pretty face. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, I, I my, mean, my gut instinct said this woman hasn't got anything. Well, in many respects, of course, she's a bit like Mickey Savage. I mean, Savage was no great brain. Uh, Savage didn't really master policy very well at all. Thank God he had Peter Fraser at his elbow and mm. Nash. Otherwise, the first Labour government uh, would have been a disaster. Um, Labour has occasionally gone for people who are pretty faces and uh, have a ready smile and have a positive outlook on life. And Mickey Savage had that and Jacinda had that. But depth, intellectual depth and grunt, no, no, no. Neither of them. It's been said that the COVID years were an effective coup where Jacinda Ardern surrounded herself with about five ministers. We never saw or heard from any other minister for a good long period of time. We never saw press releases. We never saw them announcing anything. It was only Jacinda and Chris Hipkins and Grant Robertson and David Parker that we saw 
doing anything with, you know, various uh, deputies along the way, you know, Kelvin Davis and now Carmel Cipollone. Andrew Little uh, struggling with health, uh, mm. of course, uh, and um, uh, Michael Wood, who would have to be the um, most overrated pastime uh, that uh, Labour has ever had in any prominent position. Uh, the $785 million uh, walking and cycling bridge. And, um, oh, dear, dear, dear. Uh, light rail to to uh, Mount Roskill, all of these fanciful things that he enthusiastically supports. They're still spending money on light rail out to the airport at the same time as uh, we're said to be nearly broke. Uh, certainly uh, the prefuse suggests there's no extra money for um, anything, the just let's just touch on Michael Wood because he was seen as the great white hope of the <laughs> of the Labour Party, right? Well, and I, I always thought he reminded me of Basil Brush, you know, just yeah. as demeanour and and then as farcical as Basil Brush. And it turns out that my gut feel is right again. But I can't believe he wrecked his career for the, effectively a Big Mac chips and a Coke. Well, I, I, I really don't. Uh, I can only say what I've observed of him, mm. but he uh, he was nothing like as bright or as well-educated as the person he replaced as the mm. Phil Goff. Yeah. Phil Goff. And uh, he just puffed up with his own self-importance. Uh, his career highlight was measuring the inside seam of businessmen's legs at Hugh Wright's. Yes, I gather that was it. Uh, it was what my mother called a counter jumper. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So let's just wrap this up, Michael, by getting your assessment of who is there in the Labour Party that is going to possibly be their next leader and or next prime minister after they get eviscerated at this election. Is there anyone that you can think of or, or is there anyone that springs to mind or are they not yet born? No. I mean, that's the problem. You're, first, we don't know who's going to survive the election. Uh, a huge swathe, at least 20 Labour MPs are going to be defeated, even if you just accept the, uh, uh, the figures as they are now, the poll figures. Mm. So who's going to be left? Well, we'll have to have a look at that. But I don't see amongst any of them anybody with real leadership uh, uh, skills. If they do possess leadership skills, boy, they've been keeping them uh, quiet. Uh, we've uh, we've seen no evidence. So I'm coming back to your question. I mean, I'm inclined to think that the, the next leader of the Labour Party, the next effective one who will lead them back to office, isn't yet in Parliament. Wow, that's that's pretty devastating. I mean, I'm looking at the numbers, and I think we could be looking at an overhang election here yes. where Labor wins more electorate seats than they're entitled to uh, by their list score. Yeah. And uh, But I'm also seeing uh, the distinct possibility of a massive decapitation result yeah. where senior leaders like David Parker, who's one person who I despise personally but respect politically, um, you know, he's slagged me off in Parliament for his own gain and all of that sort of thing, but that's just the cut and thrust of politics. Uh, he's well respected across the political spectrum for his political abilities and his management abilities, but he's st seriously staring down the barrel of unemployment, uh, along with every other person that's on the list, uh, including Grant Robertson. Well, Grant Robertson, of course, uh, is is just going to be a list MP and presumably mm. he'll be in the next parliament, but there won't be many others off the list uh, for uh, Labour. And um, uh, as I say, I think their uh, next winner isn't yet in the House. But wow. where is that person? I mean, the CTU has not exactly covered itself in glory uh, this campaign. In fact, they have uh, proven themselves to be the normal corrupt outfit that they always ha have been. And um, you, you're not uh, looking at any traditional 
Labourish kind of background that's got a star that will go into Parliament and do uh, anything. It's almost like they've forgotten that they're the Working Man's Party or the Working Person's Party, if we're going to be politically correct. Defining what the working man is becomes, of course, more difficult as time moves on. And uh, instead of people uh, being good, honest tradies out there, uh, of which we've got a shortage these days, a whole swathes of people are in IT and, uh, you know, all sorts of other jobs which weren't thought of in the days when uh, the term the working man's party was invented. Yeah, I think Chris Trotter had a really good analogy that he hasn't used for a number of years. He used it, uh, you know, during the David Cunliffe leadership debacle. Uh, He described a typical Labour voter as Waitakere man you know, a blue-collar type person, um, maybe middle management as well, toiling away, paying the mortgage. Uh, Kids go to an average school. They live in an average suburb uh, out west. Um, It seems to me that that ethic, work ethic, that Kiwi can-do attitude has sadly been destroyed over at least the last six years and possibly, you know, a little bit longer than that that we no longer listen to the ordinary Kiwi. Yes, I think the makeup of the work, uh, the workers in the country is changing all the time, of course. The demographic changes are very considerable. And, uh, I mean, I think back to the Tiatatu that I uh, represented uh, in Parliament and, uh, you know, the uh, they, they were tradies, with a caravan on the front lawn, often mm. go off to uh, Oriwa at Christmas time, and uh, um, people who um, were quite unlike what would be called the working man today. Yes, of course, there are tradies around, thank God. Uh, who else is going to um, uh, do your plumbing and your electrical work? But the uh, the sort of ordinary workforce is a different creature to what it used to be. Yeah, I'm totally different. And, you know, I'm just thinking of the current Tiatatui MP, Phil Twyford, mm. and some of his grandiloquent statements about Kiwi Build. And I'm surprised the National Party, or indeed the ACT Party, hasn't gone through and pulled all the video of that and turned it into ads and saying, well, where are the houses, Mr Twyford? Yeah. Uh, yes, or uh, probably they don't want to give um, uh, a look at uh, or give too much publicity to some of the appalling stuff that has been built. I mean, there's some just gross housing around Auckland that uh, is a result of uh, Kiwi built. Yeah, just appalling. Well, you know, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Michael. It's always fascinating when we get together. I think the last time we got together was outside. Um, uh, the Civic Theatre when we were crossing paths and we spent about half an hour talking, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, that's a long time ago, Cam. It is. A, lot, a lot's gone under the bridge, but uh, <laughs> it's always a pleasure uh, picking your brains about history. And you know, I'm an amateur historian. You know, I, I have a particular interest in military history and political history, but it's always good to touch base with people like yourself. And uh, in the past, I spoke with Barry Gustafsson and people like that, um, because if you don't learn from history, uh, then you're just going to repeat a lot of the mistakes that have happened in yep. the past. And that's what I see the Labour Party doing now. And you've described them as the most appalling government in New Zealand political in my history. Lifetime. Well, in your lifetime, but you can't find anything actually in history in New Zealand either. So it's not just your lifetime, it's it's the the whole of as long as we've had politics and parliament in in New Zealand, these are the worst. And that's quite some label to put on them. But, you know, I actually agree with you and I'll be glad to see the back of them. But what scares me the most is that we have a, a strong national party that's not being kept in check by either David Seymour or David Seymour and Winston Peters working in conjunction with each other. That's what frightens me the most is that Christopher Luxon just isn't strong enough to, you know, do what's necessary to turn this country around. They'll work together when the results come in uh, 
on uh, the 14th of October. Let's just hope uh, they've got the numbers to um, uh, make it for a better New Zealand. Well, let's hope you and I get our wish that we do get our politicians uh, and a selection of parties that can govern for the, for the whole of New Zealand and for the better of New Zealand. And I thank you for your time coming on The Crunch this morning. All the best, Cam. It's been a pleasure talking to you. What an amazing interview. And now you've heard it, folks. Michael Bassett thinks that this government is the worst, not just in his living memory, but for all time in New Zealand politics. After promising so much under Jacinda Ardern, they've simply failed to deliver. If Michael Bassett says you're toast, then all that remains to find out is just how badly burned that toast gets. Don't forget to send comments on Michael Bassett's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR.